Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. In the project-driven work that I bet many of you are involved in today, and in the ever-ominous matrix work that exists for almost all of us in large organizations, and the need to manage a whole host of stakeholders, influence has never been more important. And I happen to think it's one of the skills that's going to really help accelerate careers and be just essential to advance in the future. So how do you influence without manipulating? Question number one. Question number two, what are the steps to influencing? And question number three, what are the essential ingredients that make influence effective? And that's what we're going to talk about today. How do you expand your influence? With me is Brian Ahern. He's Chief Influence Officer at Influence People. He specializes in applying the science of influence in everyday situations. And he's one of a dozen individuals in the world who holds the Chialdini Method Certified Trainer designation. Brian's first book, Influence People, was in the top 100 um, influence books of all time by Book Authority. His second book, Persuasive Seller Selling, was an Amazon a new release bestseller. And his latest book, the one we're talking about today, The Influencer, Secrets to Success and Happiness. Now, this book is really a parable, but you got all of Brian's wisdom buried in that parable. And that's what we're going to talk about today. What do you do to influence? Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on, Wanda. I've been looking forward to this. So have I. And I'm always keen to learn more about how do you do influence. There's never enough. Like every tiny trick you can get, the better. Start at the top for me, though. Why? Why do you care so much about influence? Enough to keep writing about it and talking about it. Well, I will start with the word change. Uh, two changes took place when I came across Robert Cialdini's material on influence. I immediately understood that it was the foundation of selling and I was involved in sales training. And the deeper I went with his material and the more I saw the application, it literally changed my career because it changed everything that I was doing when I was working in the corporate world for an insurance company, how I interacted, how I was teaching people selling, how I was leading, all of those things. And ultimately, it led to me leaving the company and doing this full time. So it changed my career, but it also changed my life because it changed how I interact with people on a daily basis. And one of the biggest examples I would give is it changed how my wife and I raised our daughter, incorporating the concepts of influence to make it easier for her to buy into the things that we knew were in her best self-interest. So change is the first thing. And then what I really began to understand was the ability for somebody to ethically influence another person, to get that person to say yes, is huge when it comes to your professional success. And it's really, really important when it comes to your personal happiness, your ability to get people to say yes to you. And so that's why I continue to do it, because I want to help change people's lives. I want them to enjoy more success at the office and happiness at home. And so there's a big world out there to teach this material to. 
All right. You just said something to me that I hadn't thought about. I am constantly talking about how to have impact, how to have greater impact in your career. And I like the word impact rather than the notion of advance, because advance is I'm required to get the next title promotion or the next salary band or some version of that. And it's in other people's control, whether I reach it or not. Too many factors that impact that one, whether it's going to work or not. Impact, though, I can increase my impact regardless where I am in the organization with or without advancement. And what you just said, to ethically influence and to get people to say yes, mm-hmm. is ultimately how you have greater impact. Absolutely. Because so say yes. Say they, yes. Yes. They, we all, you know, when I talk to, to people, you know, a salesperson, they all get it, right? They want the prospect to say yes. They want to make the sale. But managers, think of those people who are full of great ideas but somebody above them has to say yes. They have to give them the green light before they can implement those ideas. So how you convey those ideas is an influence process. And the better that you are at doing that, the more opportunity there are for your ideas. Then you are impacting the company. But even people at the ground level, so maybe you're not a manager, maybe you're not a leader in in the sense of having a, a team that's following you, you still can impact upwards. You can impact uh, across the organization. Your ability to get people to buy in might be that first step to an advancement to a next level within that organization. Yeah. And either way, even if you don't have the aspiration to get to higher level, getting more people to say yes, having bigger influence over what the organization does and impact is just a great thing. All right, I have to go backwards though, Brian, because you you left the thing hanging that I just can't ignore. You said learning Cialdini's method changed your personal life in that mm-hmm. it changed how you raised your daughter. Can you give us an example of how that happened? Sure. Uh, I think a really good example, like when our kids hit those teenage years, and a lot of times, you know, they're they're not wanting to do the things that maybe we want them to do, or we can have friction when it comes to you know, getting them to do homework or chores or things like that. So a, a great example that I have was when my daughter uh, was 12 years old, I think, 13, and, you know, turning into a young woman, you know, two-hour showers, boys, all those things. The last thing she wants to do is help dear old dad on a hot summer day by cutting the grass. Now, I knew that if I would say, hey, Abigail, I'll give you a raise in your allowance if you'll cut the grass when I need you to. Um, She might have said, no, thanks. I don't like money that much. Or she might have said, well, how much? And tried to negotiate me up. In other words, I was offering a reward and there could have been a negotiation. There's a principle that we talk about called reciprocity, where when we do something for another person, they quite often feel an obligation to do something in return. So understanding this, We were in the car one day driving home and I said, Abigail, I'm going to give you a raise in your allowance, $10 a week. She said, why? And I told her things that I was genuinely proud of and and how she'd shown responsibility. But I also understood that it would make it easier for her to say yes if I needed her to cut the grass. So a few weeks go by, I'm getting ready to travel. I turned to her and I said, Abigail, I'm going to go out of town. Would you mind cutting the grass while I'm gone? And I could see everything in her being thinking, don't ask me to do this. I don't want to do this. And so I very quickly said, hey, time out. I said, I just gave you a raise in your allowance. I didn't ask for anything. Can't you help me out? And she goes, okay. And she never resisted after that. 
because she understood like, you know, dad's doing kind things for me. And when I do things for him, it like greases the wheels and life just works better. So that for me was a, a wonderful example about how to avoid some of the friction that can come during those years when you need your kids to do things to help out around the house. Right. All right. Reciprocity. I do something kind for someone else mm -hmm. that they appreciate, that they would value, not big, something small. Mm -hmm. And then the human tendency, the preference is to reciprocate, to yes. do a favor back. And sometimes mm -hmm. we have to remind them to please do a favor, but okay, either way, that's the principle you're talking about, reciprocity. All right. Parents of teenagers, parents of younger kids too, I recommend trying it. Too young, yes. they don't reason, but somewhere in those middle years is a good thing. But we teach we teach that. Think about this, Wanda. When when you were a little girl, when I was a little boy, if someone did something kind, mom or dad probably turned to us right away and said, what do you say? And we said, thank you. And we started learning. We were being conditioned that when someone does something, there's this expectation that we'll do something in return. And then you start figuring out, as I said before, for life tends to work better when you reciprocate because then that person will do kind things and you've got this virtuous cycle that you've created. And so we do have to teach it and we do have to reinforce it, but pretty quickly, like my daughter got it and, and I didn't have to keep reinforcing. It just became very natural for her to act in that manner. Great. I love it. I love it. All right. If it works with your teenage daughter, I promise you will work at the office probably a little easier too sometimes. Okay, you talked about the Cialdini method. So walk us through what are the steps? What's the process maybe is a better word for influencing people? Great question. And there, there is a process. This isn't just winging it. But the more that you learn these principles of influence, the easier it gets. It just becomes who you are. And so that's why we talk about principles. I live by principles. Uh, I don't live by techniques or anything like that, but I live by principles. When we talk about the influence process, the first thing that you have to do, and this may sound very rudimentary, but you have to clearly understand who you are trying to persuade. Sometimes people lose sight of that and they just launch in and they try to get someone to say yes without stepping back and saying, who is it that really is the target here? Uh, and then we, we don't just consider our goals. We have to understand what their goals are as well. Our goal is probably get them to say yes to our idea. It's get them to say yes to a product or service. But we have to understand what their goals are, too, so that we can align with that. And after that, then you start to research the situation. And you really want to understand as much as you can about everything that surrounds this, this situation. And once you've done that, you start thinking, OK, now which of these principles of influence are generally available to me that I could bring into my communication to make it easier. And once you've done all that, you just kind of formulate a plan in how you're going to approach this situation. So you're not going in scripted, but you're going in with a solid understanding of who they are, what your goals and their goals are, with the situation that you're in and the principles that apply, and you just begin to have a very natural conversation. All right. So when you say, I want to start, so clearly understand who the person is, what their goals are, research the situation. So I'm looking for alignment, decide which of the principles are going to apply, then create a plan. And then I'm off to execute that plan, or right. at least until I need to reevaluate that plan and try again. When you say understand the person, how much of that is just understand the who the target is 
And how much of that is understand the personality, the preferences, the styles of the Mm -hmm. person, in addition, obviously, to their goals? Well, so there's two things there. And I think getting to know the person and, and what is important to them is critically important. But it's also important to understand their personality type because you're not going to make the same uh, communication or approach, even if it's the same product, service, idea, whatever, to everybody. Because then you're just hoping that you're going to hit the right person. But for example, I, I talk about in the book what I call the deal model. And deal simply means driver, expressive, amiable, logical. The quicker you get a handle on that, the easier it becomes to communicate with that person. You don't talk to that type A driver individual like you do the relaxed, amiable, kind of carefree person. You may talk about the same um, product, service, et cetera, but you talk about it differently and different principles come into play. So it's important to understand the personality type, but also I think people want to be known. And so the more I get to know them and what's important, their family, those types of things, uh, the easier it becomes to have rapport and then have influence. Okay. All right. So we are talking about, so this one is understanding the person's personality profile, at least in some terms, in terms of how to communicate with them. So driver, expressive, amiable, or logic kind of preference, driving preference, leading preferences. And that lets me know how to communicate differently. But I also Mm -hmm. want to build rapport with the person, meaning I want to know something about them on a more personal side. Now, not to the point where I'm invading their wall Uh of privacy, but something that gives me a connection in common because then it becomes easier, right? Yes. An example that I have for this, when I was prospecting a a potentially really large client, I got an opportunity to meet with a senior vice president. I had 30 minutes on her calendar and we were talking. And and at some point I said, hey, by the way, I need to ask you, how do you know Todd Alice? And she says, oh my gosh, he's my BFF at church. How do you know him? I said, I played high school football for him. So here was a guy who was very significant for both of us. And we started talking about some things that we had learned from him. And all of a sudden, this senior executive gives me more than an hour. She had only scheduled 30 minutes. But but having that rapport and finding that thing that we could connect on made a world of difference. And that's where understanding the situation, doing your research on, on the person, the organization, because if you can find that one or two thing that, that you might be able to have in common, it's amazing how it makes everything so much easier. Right. right. So anybody out there who is in a partnership business and you're thinking about business development or in a sales business, and you have know that in the course of your career, you've got to develop your own relationships that become money makers for your company. You just heard the secret to how to do it. Because when you find things in common with people that you're interacting with, in my experience, that increases trust. It increases their receptivity to talking to you. It increases the chances of getting yes. Now, nothing's a guarantee in this world, but finding that thing Mm -hmm. is just really important. And you're right. It takes homework. Absolutely. Totally homework. All right. So cool. So I've done some research. Now, do you have tips for how to do research on people? I mean, obviously there's the Google and LinkedIn idea, but what can I do beyond that that doesn't become intrusive? Well, I, I, LinkedIn right away is is a plethora of information. 
because you may have gone to the same school, you may volunteer at the same organizations, uh, obviously the connections that you have in common. I always find that one to be really interesting because when I look at somebody's connections and I see some people that are very significant maybe for me, and if I know, hey, this person also lives in Columbus, Ohio, so they probably actually know this connection in person like I do. Um, that's where it really becomes important. Now, sometimes you go out and you say, wow, we have 120 connections in common. And, and many of those are, are loose connections for all of us. Uh, that's not going to be as effective as if you can narrow it down and say, like, I know this person lives in the city and so does this connection. There's a good chance that that they actually know them and we can have some conversation about the impact that they've had on our lives. So that becomes a really important part. Um, if you find them on on Facebook and you can see what's important to them, if you see they're wearing a Packers jersey or, or something like that, and, and you can comment on something, those all become really important. Um, and then obviously Google is, you know, the entirety of the universe potentially on, on that person. But you need to make the time to do that. You know, it's a little bit of time, but boy, it can have a big difference in terms of your your interaction with the individual. I would also add, if you have the chance to be at the person's desk or office, and it's not a hot desking situation, mm -hmm. so they have everything around them. Often people will have stuff on their desk that gives clues about their interest as well. We don't yeah. always have that option, though. So. Yeah. And, and one other thing that comes right to mind, too, in fact, I did this this morning, ask somebody who probably knows that individual. So I've got a, a meeting coming up next month. And I know somebody who's worked with this organization. So I texted them and said, hey, you know, do you happen to know this person? Can you give me any insights on that? Now, the person I was reaching out to is also a friend. And I said, hey, by the way, we haven't seen each other for a while. Here's a link to my calendar. Let's have coffee next month. And, and so this individual will appreciate that. So we're nurturing our friendship. Of course, he wants to help me because we're friends and I've helped him. So that becomes really important if you can find people who actually know the person you're going to be interacting with. Right, right. Okay, that makes a bunch of sense to me. All right, so I understand who my target is. I understand something about them personally. I've got a basis for creating rapport. I understand what their goals are. I understand what they're trying to achieve. I know something about their communication preferences. All right, now I need to research the situation. What do I need to know about the situation? You need to understand the biggest thing is gonna be their personal goals. Okay. Because e even within a large organization, human beings are pretty self-interested and and they are still going to do things that are probably in their best interest hopefully it aligns with the organization so yes you can understand what the organization is is gearing towards but what about that person what are their particular goals and and i think a great question is you know wanda what will make you look like a rock star coming out of this tell me what it is that you're going to need if we ultimately figure out that we can do business together. And then you're going to start telling me, I need this, you know, and I'm maybe I'm looking for a promotion. And you're going to share that information. I need to pay close attention with my listening skills. And I need to take note of that. And then I need to show how what I'm offering can align with that. Mm -hmm. There's a principle called consistency. We feel this internal and external pressure to be consistent in what we say and what we do. So by understanding the larger organization, but you as an individual, and you're telling me what you need to succeed, and I show you that my solution lines up with that, it becomes much easier for you to say yes. Okay. So 
second principle. So we talked about the reciprocity principle, and now you give me a second principle, consistency. People want to be consistent. Yes. So if what I am trying to get you to say yes to aligns with what it is that you are trying to achieve, that consistency increases the chances of yes. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Great. Okay. So that's research in the situation. Now you've said, I need to decide which principles are available to me. Mm -hmm. We've got two principles already, reciprocity and consistency. What are the others? So there's a total of seven principles that we talk about. Uh, The first one is liking, and everybody will get this. We prefer to say yes to people we know and like. Mm -hmm. Employing that principle is not about me, Wanda, getting you to like me though. It's about me coming to know and like you, because when you sense that, hey, this guy, Brian, he really seems to like me. He really cares. And and we've got all of these subconscious clues, smile on the face, the look of the eye, the body language, all of these things that are telling us something that we can't always put our finger on. But when you really start to come to know that Brian really cares for me, that is what opens you up. It's not like I am just um, coming across like somebody who's just trying to get you to like me so you'll want to do business with me. So to me, that's the foundational principle because that starts to change everything else. It changes my giving, the reciprocity, because when I get to know and like you, Wanda, I want what's best for you, at least what I understand to be best for you. And that's how you receive it, even if you have to say no, because you realize like Brian is looking out for my best interest. When it comes to that principle consistency, then I'm not asking you questions to manipulate you into a solution. I'm asking you questions to genuinely get to know and understand you. Um, Another principle is called consensus. Consensus or social proof simply says we, we are very likely to follow the lead of others. And the more similar they are to us, the more likely we are to follow their lead. So if I have come to know and like you and I am trying to have a positive influence on you, I'm going to be thinking about other people who are like you. And I'm going to talk to you about those people and how they benefited from a solution. And you're beginning to think, well, if they're like me and they're having success with this, then it's pretty likely that I would have success with this too. And it starts making it cognitively easier for you to say yes. Okay. So- We've hit a number of principles. Let me pause there in case you've got questions. So let me just repeat them because I think they're really interesting to recognize that these principles are applying. One is reciprocity. I'm going to do something kind, genuinely kind, reasonably kind, not massive. And that will increase the chances that you will also reciprocate and do something as a favor for me. Be more predisposed to say yes. I've got the um, principle of of, um, consistency meaning I want to make sure that what I'm trying to get you to say yes to is consistent with other things you're already doing. Otherwise, yes. going to probably say no. That's a big one when you think about where you're asking people to violate some principle they've already set up in the organization. Third one is this notion of liking, one of my favorites. And it's not about getting people to like me. It's about genuinely showing that I like slash respect the other person. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite secrets for turning around a relationship, by the way, is to find one thing you respect and show it. It's amazing how quickly that works, but it needs to be genuine, not for purposes of manipulation. And then consensus. People, I'm going to follow people who follow the lead of others, particularly people who are more similar to me. So who else that this person knows, likes, is similar to, is doing or backs what you're trying to say? Okay. All right. Great. 
We got three more to go, though. Yes. So the principle of authority says that we are more likely to follow the lead of an expert. And it's not just enough to be an expert. You have to be a trusted expert. Um, there are some people who are certainly experts, but they've lost their reputation. We won't follow them. But when we can show genuine expertise, whether it's our own personal expertise or we can bring the expertise of others into the conversation, that adds credibility. It makes it easier for someone to say yes. Then we have scarcity, that principle that says we value things more when we think that they're rare or going away. And so when we highlight potential loss over gain, that makes it much easier for people to say yes. In fact, uh, Daniel Kahneman and his late partner, Amos Tversky, won a Nobel Prize for this, where they statistically proved human beings feel the pain of loss anywhere from two to two and a half times more than the joy of gaining the very same thing. So the slight reframe from rah, rah, rah gain to, hey, I got to be honest, this is what you'll be missing out on if you don't go this course of action, has a massive impact on how people say yes. And then the final principle is called unity. And unity is about having shared identity. So this goes much deeper than the principle of liking. When you find that you have some shared identity with another person, they're saying yes to you is almost as if they're saying yes to themselves. And the best example that I've seen in my life with this is my late father served in the Marines. My dad would do anything for another Marine. And in doing so, it made him feel great. So his helping them was like helping himself. Uh, family is obviously another one. There are things that we will do for family members that we wouldn't do for maybe even our best friends because we are genetically similar. Okay. Ryan, as you're talking about this, it makes me think about in all of these seven principles, when I am not, don't have as much in common with the person I'm trying to influence, let's say somebody who's part of the majority in an organization or a senior level leader who's just different than I am by race or gender or whatever background we want to say, I'm making it that much harder to influence mm -hmm. because it's harder to know what favor I could do that would be useful. It's harder to build that rapport. It's harder to understand um, the scarcity principle, it's harder to get the unity principle. And there's a whole bunch of these that are really built around things we have in common and appreciating what we have in common. Hmm. You want to react to that? Well, I think when, when you get to those people who are not similar to you or you don't know well, that's where research becomes even more important. Um, I remember we used to talk about in, in the workshop that when we find that people share the same values and beliefs, that can overwhelm things like uh, difference in race and sex and, and things like that. So really getting to know as best you can that individual. The other thing I would say, too, when you're starting to talk about like senior level managers, uh, the principle of scarcity becomes very important. In talking about an idea, you know, you could go in and say, hey, Wanda, I got this idea. I think it's going to make us a million dollars a year. You might be like dime a dozen. Hear those all the time. But if I go in and say, Wanda, we're losing a million dollars a year, you're probably like, what? What do you mean? Well, because we're not doing this. We are foregoing a million dollars a year. That simple reframe at least has you connected to the conversation now. And so those are the subtleties that people will have to understand if they don't have that rapport because of the, the differences between them and someone else. Right. I, and I think the sort of point is the rapport is harder to come by. 
It doesn't mean it's not doable. It just means it's that extra effort to build it, to find it, to identify. I think the rapport is there under any circumstances. There's something we value in common, whether it's our customer or a charity or a something, a cause. And finding that is going to actually help, I think. Oh, absolutely. And and even people who seem very distant still have things that they love. Could be their kids. It could be a, a passion for a sport. It could be a charity. And, and if you can uncover that and you can have conversation around that, that may make all the difference in the world. Okay. Now, what about when, let's say a sport, for example, something, you know, I deal with as a woman all the time. I'm not the classic sports figure. Appreciate sports, but not the classic sports figure. Um, and I can have a passing conversation with somebody, but it's not something I genuinely care about. Mm-hmm. Does that work in terms of building rapport or is that kind of going to backfire? Well, I think if you, as Dale Carnegie said, show genuine interest in the other person. So I may not have a passion for certain things that, that you do. Let's say you went skydiving, right? I have no aspiration to jump out of a plane at five or 10,000 feet. But if I show genuine interest and say, Wanda, what possessed you to do that? And you begin to talk about it and you're reliving some of the feelings and and everything around that, you're also transferring those positive feelings to me. So by just showing that genuine interest in something else, you know, sports could be one too, or you could say, you know what, I'm not a soccer fan, but I know that you're passionate about it. And I watched Ted Lasso. It seems kind of cool. What got you into soccer? And you begin to have that conversation and maybe they watch Ted Lasso and you talk about that. And and so it's about showing genuine interest. and, And a lot of that starts with just being curious. Okay. So curious, asking about, I know I did walk into a senior executive's office once I've told this story many times. There was a picture of him running a marathon in that city. I had two minutes waiting for him to finish an email. I looked up, saw it, and I made a comment like, wow, that was just recent. I'm impressed. And, you know, followed with, do you run? And the answer is no, absolutely not. I do not like it, at least not as a marathon. And that was a laugh, but I can respect somebody who does. And we had a little chat about that. It wasn't long, maybe 30 seconds, 45 seconds, but that was enough to build the rapport. It was, mm-hmm. a sh- again, showing the respect. Okay. So to come back to all of this, Brian, to kind of try to summarize how all this goes together, there is, I have to do my homework on the person that I am trying to get to say yes. And we've defined homework as understanding who they are what their style of communication is, what their interests and hobbies are, what points of common connection are, and so forth. Then I'm going to decide what they're trying to achieve and how what I'm offering actually aligns with what they're trying to achieve with their goals. Then I'm going to look at these seven principles that we've just reviewed and say, which ones can I apply in this particular situation? And of course, how am I going to go about doing that? Mm-hmm. So if it isn't me, that's the authority, for example, where's the authority that I'm going to bring or the authority that I can reference as an example. And then I'm going to create a plan. What does this plan look like? And how do I go about executing that plan? And then obviously rinse and repeat if plan isn't at first successful, keep trying again, I presume you would say. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Pretty clear. This is a perfect place to take a break. When we come back, I want to do two things. One is to talk about some skills like active listening and why that is so important. But I also want to talk about this question of manipulation, something, Brian, you've said multiple times, you know, genuineness and not trying to manipulate. I want to talk about the where's that 
crossing point and a few other things as well. My guest today is Brian Ahern, the book we're talking about, The Influencer, Secrets to Success and Happiness. And we'll be right back. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Brian Ahern. He's Chief Influence Officer at Influence People, author of multiple books, but the one we're talking about today is The Influencer, Secrets to Success and Happiness. Now, the general principle here is influencing people to say yes, or we might say persuading people to say yes, is what is going to lead to business success. I'm going to add greater impact, and Brian is going to say personal happiness. I'm going to feel better. These principles and process apply in the personal life as well as in your business life. And it's a matter of understanding who you're trying to influence in many different aspects, as well as deciding which of seven principles you're going to apply in that particular situation. And the principles are reciprocity, consistency, liking, consensus, authority, scarcity, and unity. And we, you'll have to listen to the first half again to get a definition because I won't go through all of them one more time. But Brian, let's talk about this notion of um, manipulation. Every time I talk with a group about influence, about how to persuade, about getting a senior executive on side, if it's a coaching, that question of when does this tip into manipulation comes up. What's your view on this one? If it weren't for the word manipulation, I would not be doing what I'm doing today. We would not be having this conversation. I might still be working for the insurance company. 
when I came across Robert Cialdini's material over 20 years ago, a coworker gave a video of him presenting at Stanford. And that's where the light bulb went on. I'm like, wow, um, this is the underpinning of all selling. I was involved in sales training. I love the fact that it's all research-based. It wasn't fluff. You had empirical data. And the third thing that I really respected was his stance on ethics, non-manipulative ways to get people to say yes, to move them to action. I started using the video around the company in some training, signed up for Stanford's marketing. One day, one of their flyers comes across my desk, has Cialdini's picture, and in bold letters, it says bestseller, and right underneath it in bold letters, call it influence, persuasion, or even manipulation. I was like, oh, I cannot believe that they actually use that word because he's so clear. So either the copywriter didn't watch the video or they just didn't get it. So I don't know what it was, but I guess the moral part of me felt it needed to be addressed. So I emailed Stanford and I basically said, I don't know anybody who wants to be manipulated. And I don't know anybody who's looking to become a manipulator. That one word cannot be helping your sales, but it's probably really hurting. I never heard from Stanford, but sometime later, my phone rang at work and it was a representative of Dr. Robert Cialdini's. She introduced herself. She said, I am calling to thank you on behalf of Dr. Cialdini. You sent an email to Stanford. And because of that, they're changing the marketing of all of our materials. And I was like, wow, that is really cool. We had this nice conversation. And before we hung up, she said, you know, if your company ever needs a guest speaker, he travels the world and talks about this. I said, I sit next to the woman who plans our event. You want to talk to her? And as fate would have it, in the summer of 2004, he was in Columbus, Ohio, several times to address the insurance agents that represented the company. And that's where I got involved with the training. And I went to his workshop. And, and three years later, I was uh, designated as one of his certified trainers. So I take this really seriously in terms of doing it in an ethical, upright manner. Okay. So how do I know the difference between, I mean, you know, it's a shade of gray if you're not careful with your own intentionality. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, first of all, I understand entire books are written on ethics, courses are taught on ethics. And when you are in the midst of it, you can't say, let me take a break and go read my book. So we have three things that we talk about are, are must haves to be ethical. The first is truthfulness. We always tell the truth and we never hide the truth, right? If I am truthful with you, but I'm hiding the truth and you find out something and you say, hey, Brian, why didn't you tell me? I am not going to look ethical if I say, well, Wanda, you didn't ask. Um, so we don't, we always tell the truth and we don't hide the truth. Uh, the, the second thing that we do is we only use the principles, as I referenced earlier, that are natural to the situation. I don't, falsely manufacture scarcity if there's no scarcity there. I don't falsely claim people like you, Wanda, are doing something if they're not. Now, that is lying, I think, in both cases, but it's very specific to the psychology. The third thing is we look to create, as Covey would have said, a win-win situation, or as I say in the book, good for you, good for me, then we're good to go. If we know that we're being honest with people using the psychology naturally and we're creating beneficial outcomes for both parties, we can feel good about how we're interacting with that person. Okay. Tell the truth, not hide the truth. Mm -hmm. I might say not shade the truth. Yes. Or not spin the truth. That's a hard one to live by. 
It is. I mean, and and there and, and I recognize that there are multiple ways to see things in how you how you present things. Um, but I am also going to present things in what I believe is the best light, knowing that what I'm offering you is not just my best interest, but also in your best interest. And this is where the principle of liking has become so important, because if I've come to know and like you, I do want your best. I won't manipulate my friends. I trust you would not do that, Wanda. And I trust your listeners wouldn't. So let's make friends out of the people that we're interacting with. All right. That also, when you have that genuine interest in somebody, genuine mm -hmm. caring for them, it makes it harder to slide into the manipulation. I'd agree with you. I'm only going to, second principle is I'm only going to use the principles that are natural, meaning I'm not manufacturing authority or scarcity or pretending to like or pretending yeah. to uh, something we have a connection when we actually don't have a connection. Yes. And then three, I like your phrase, win-win, and I like your phrasing much better than that. We use win-win too much in the world. Good mm -hmm. for you, good for me, good to go. Mm -hmm. Yep. Good for you, good for me, good to go. All right. So to me, those come down to my intention in mm -hmm. any given situation is to do what is genuinely good for you, mm -hmm. what is genuinely good for me. I might sacrifice something that's good for me, but I have to be a little careful about that because it'll build resentment and a bunch of problems down the line. But genuinely good for me and genuinely good for you. Um, and with that, the truth, use what's natural and then mutual, win-win. Yep. Okay. All right. Okay. Intentions. Fair enough. Let's shift and talk about active listening. Um, so now I'm sure everybody's heard the term active listening, but as a reminder, what it basically means is I am listening to what Brian is saying, and then I am synthesizing back what I've heard from him, confirming that I'm right. Never replaying it back verbatim because I find that gets to be offensive really quickly, but a synthesis, a summary of the essence of what I heard. Now, why is that important, Brian? Listening is important because if you are not doing a good job there, if you're so self-focused, you're going to miss information that could be critically important to your next steps in influence. It could be critically important to say, hey, maybe we're not going to be a fit based on some of the things that I've heard. So you could miss important information. Um, when I was leading sales training for the insurance company, I conducted a little experiment of sorts. We had about a couple hundred people between some of our regional offices, and we would put them in a situation where I would hand out a piece of paper and it simply said at the top, it gave them instructions. One set of people, it said, sit back and just listen intently to the story. Another group, it said, um, listen to the story, feel free to take notes. And a third group, it said, as you listen to the story, connect as many of the numbers, and there was numbers one to 72 as possible. So you have three different groups here. When we looked at the results, the people who had taken notes got 60% more questions right. There was a 10 question survey at the end of this five minute story. They got 60% question, more questions right than the people who are connecting the, the numbers. The people who just sat and focused on listening got nearly 75% more right. Now, the moving of the numbers was analogous to how many people play on the phone while they're in a meeting or they're doing other, it's distracted listening. And, and it really drove home for people like, wow, it makes a world of difference if I hone in 
and really pay attention. If your organization can do a 60 to 75% better job listening than your competitors, you are bound to catch information that's gonna help you make better decisions. So that for me is why it's critically important that we focus on our listening skills. It's interesting, it reminds me, um, A, that's our job as coaches. When we're coaching, whether you're internal or external, the organization, your job is about listening, not about your own agenda. But it reminds me of a senior executive at one of my financial services clients who says, I get so angry with my team or anybody else in the organization who goes to a client and who starts talking right away. As if we're telling the client how to run their business and we know it better than they do. And it's like just this, we want to do that prep, but we want to start with listening. Let the client tell us what it is that's important to them and respond accordingly. And that's exactly what you're saying. Listen, listen intently. What's interesting though about this is that it is listening and not necessarily listening and taking notes because you say taking notes divides attention. It can. Too many people try to write down everything that's being said. And in doing so, you're missing a lot of information. In fact, I've read studies that say, you know, kids who are in college and they're taking notes on their computer, they try to transcribe and they're not really synthesizing the information and thinking about it as it comes in. So note taking can be a skill in and of itself. What I always encourage people to do is just jot down a, a word or two or a bullet point, something that will jar your memory that when you leave the meeting, you can begin to fill in the blanks. And it's amazing. I mean, we've all probably experienced this where you've watched a movie, you have a hard time remembering it until somebody asks you a question. And once you get into talking about it, you really have remembered a lot. And notes can be something like that, but they can't be writing the next great American novel. That's, that's not what you're supposed to do. You can't get the verbatim. There is an art in that in understanding what words you need, what phrases you need, what you can remember to fill in, and what's going to be the jog for your memory. Um, absolutely right about that. Um, one of the things that I describe in the book, I have a methodology that I call listening stars. And stars is an acronym that stands for stop, stop everything that you're doing, tone, focus on that. That quite often conveys emotional state. A is the ask clarifying questions. I generally am not a fan of interrupting, but if you say something and I say, hey, Wanda, I'm not sure I really understand. Could you go back and you know, it shows I'm actively listening, I'm engaged. Um, and then, so I'm stars. R is restate, and you talked about that. I restate in my own words, my understanding of what you have conveyed, and the S is scribble. Take moderate notes throughout. <laughs> and, and I think if people, every one of those steps, in one sense, it's a skill, but the bigger sense, it's a choice. I can choose to stop. I can choose to focus on tone, etc. So if people are willing to make those choices, they get easier and easier, like most skills in life, till the point that they become something you don't even have to think about. It's just who you are and what you do. I find one of the hardest things for people to do in this active listening is to suspend their own agenda. So I come to a meeting with the purpose of getting you, Brian, to say yes to something. That is on my mind. And my agenda is to make four points that are going to be absolutely profoundly persuasive. And that is what is running through my brain. So that I'm thinking about that and actually don't have the capacity to genuinely stars, as you just said, stop, focus on the tone, etc. Um, 
And it's, you know, ways to stop that agenda from running. Um, I know my secret is I put that agenda on the sideline notes of whatever paper I have in front of me. So I know I have a reference point for anything I wanted to say, word reference point, not verbatim. But do you have any other techniques that help you suspend your agenda so you're actually listening? Well, first thing is when you go in, you have to acknowledge that you've done that in the past and you're not going to do it now. You have to make an intention of not doing that. I, For me, I, I would say the biggest thing that I find helps me with that is maintaining eye contact. Mm -hmm. If I am really looking at someone in the, in the eyes, it's hard to think about something else because I'm seeing so much about that individual. I will tell you that I was not a very good listener in the past. I remember a time my wife goes, what? You don't remember that? You teach listening classes? And, and that stung a little bit. But I have gotten to the point now where when I am with somebody and then maybe I don't see him for six months and I bring something up and they're like, wow, you remembered that? But it was because I've made this choice to, to focus in. Now, I don't remember everything about the conversation, but you can usually tell when the important stuff is being talked about. And, and so it does, it makes people feel valued. And I think when you're looking at them and we've all probably had this, we're in a conversation and somebody's looking around and you just get the sense that they're just waiting for somebody more important to walk in or they're looking for something else and it doesn't feel good. You, d you don't genuinely feel like they're listening to you. In fact, frequently I will stop talking and it takes several seconds before even my best friends realize that I have stopped talking. It's because their attention is distracted to something else. So mm -hmm. much for multitasking. All right, we've covered active listening. I want to shift to a slightly different one. You know, we deal with a lot of different personality profiles in any large organization and some of whom we love and some of whom we just don't love as much. Now, maybe other people do. I'm not saying somebody's a bad personality, but it's just not my cup of tea. All right. What's my strategy for influencing somebody I just don't love so much? I think we go back to liking and getting to know them. So I'll share a quick story. When I was involved in sales training at the insurance company, the individual who ran the claims department asked me to come in and do some training because he understood that settling a claim is an influence process too. First meeting I go to, the guy who's the head of the claims training is sitting right across from me, arms folded, leaning forward. My sense is he's looking at me like, what are you doing here? This is my thing. Well, I tell the, the senior executive at some point, I'm like, hey, I'm done with the spring training. I'm available if you need me. Thought he would invite me to meetings. Instead, he sends me on the road with this guy. So I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I got to go on the road. This person doesn't like me. And it was pretty cold at first. And then to make things even worse, the first time we're traveling, we're at Starbucks. I get my coffee and I say, can I have one of those green sticks to put my coffee? And they give me one. He orders his coffee and asks for a stick. And the lady says, I'm so sorry. I just gave the last one to him. So I, I said, here, you can have mine. He's like, no, it's yours. You, and, and he wouldn't take it. The next week we were traveling again and I was at the airport before him and I see him strolling down the terminal and I said, hey, his name's Brandon. I said, hey, Brandon, I got you something. And he goes, oh, what? And I pulled out of my briefcase a green stick. And I said, in case you ever need one. And he laughed and it broke the ice. And all of a sudden we were having a great conversation. And he has been one of my biggest advocates since I left the company five years ago, introducing me to people and, and trying to get me opportunities. And it all came down to one little thing. 
But but I do believe, Wanda, underneath everybody, there is a good person that if we only got to know them and we got to know their story and we valued them, they would it would change all the dynamics of the relationship. I think there's an awful lot of truth in that. And it's, boy, is it hard to practice in yes. reality on some occasions. But I have certainly seen that in my own personal life, um, in my professional life, where someone I thought didn't like me it wasn't that they didn't like me. We just hadn't really connected. Or maybe they're slow to open up. Or maybe they're a little bit more sarcastic than I am. And I read that as don't like me. Mm -hmm. Now, however, when I find that personality that genuinely doesn't like me, then I it's, it stresses me out. I have to find a solution to those for sure. All right, Brian, rational arguments. My last question, just a couple minutes to answer this one. Too many people that I talk to believe that the rational argument is the way to get to a yes. Yeah. What do you say to them? It's never worked when I've been trying to convince my wife of anything. Um, we we want to believe that we're rational creatures. And I think the work in behavioral economics, people like Dan Ariely shows, in fact, his book is called Predictably Irrational, that we are very irrational, but in predictable ways. Um, so we like to convince ourselves that, you know, the reason we bought something, you know, is for all these reasons, A, B, and C. But salespeople understand that people buy based on emotion and justify afterwards with logic. So I'm not saying that we should go in and just make a completely emotional appeal, get people to cry and do things like that. That can come across as manipulative. But you also don't want to go so far to the other side that you just lay out A, B, and C and expect they're going to understand it and, and do that. This is where the principles come in because you have an opportunity to invoke a little scarcity, some liking. And, and these principles, all people, they make decisions based on them to one degree or another. So don't lean so heavily on the, the rationality of your argument. Understand how to present it using what science says is the best way to communicate. Okay. All right. So I need rational argument, but that alone isn't enough. I need some other principles that are going to help get to yes. Brian, I think we could keep talking for another hour. What a great set of tips and advice here. My guest today, Brian Ahern, the book is called The Influencer Secrets to Success and Happiness. Brian, how can people find you? Easiest way would be LinkedIn. Uh, I will accept anybody who is reaching out and, and I try to keep social media social. So if you reach out and you don't say that you heard me on the show, guaranteed, I will come back and say, how did you find me? It's okay. an opportunity for us to have some conversation. The other would be my website, influencepeople.biz. Influencepeople.biz. All right, Brian, thanks for being a guest. If you've liked this episode, please rate us highly favorably on your favorite podcast server and definitely join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.